cue, I lay down and the monitor's by my ear, and what do I hear like right away? Ellie, starting to cry. And so my husband was like, I'll get her. So he got up and he went to go get her and I went back to sleep. And so just a second later, I feel like a padding on my leg and I like squint, look, and it's my husband, Mason, and he's like got his eyes closed and he's patting my leg. And I was like, what are you doing? And he said, I'm helping you with his eyes closed. And I was like, Ellie's still crying on the monitor. I was like, helping, helping me what? And he was like, and then he just went around and got back in bed and went back to sleep. And he doesn't remember that. He thought it was Ellie. So it's funny because back in that time, whenever we had lots of little babies, weariness really took its toll on us. And there were times that it really was like delirium. Um, and with or without children, probably everyone in here has felt what it feels like to have like sleeplessness and how that can make you really weary. And that is a fatigue that takes a toll on your body and on your mind and it makes you feel like you're moving in slow motion, right? Sometimes we can laugh about stories like the one I just told, but sometimes weariness really isn't funny. Sometimes weariness feels like a strained relationship that's getting better or getting worse and not better. Sometimes Weariness feels like the day after day demands of taking care of a family member while we watch their body or mind deteriorate. Sometimes it's just regular stuff. Sometimes it's the way that one day bleeds into another day and we have chores and diapers and guess what? It's dinner time again and what are we having? Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes it's long cycles of anxiety or depression or sadness that make us feel like we're just being held underwater for too long. We're desperate for a fresh breath and it just isn't coming. Weariness can show up in loneliness, in doubt, in fear. It's a deep, venomous bite that we've all felt. And it's especially potent whenever there's no hope. The Bible is living and active, right? It's relevant for our lives today. Not surprisingly, weariness is a really prominent emotion that we see in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. So to trace it briefly, God's chosen people quickly find themselves as slaves. So right off the bat, in the second book of the Bible, Exodus, chapter 1, so the very first chapter, it says that God's people were living lives that were marked with bitterness. It says they were slaves and they were bitter with hard service. These were God's people with bitter lives. Exodus 2 says that they groaned because of their slavery and they cried for help. If you know this story, you know that the slaves were miraculously freed and then they spent the next 40 years learning the same lessons of dependence on God over and over. God's people spent a lot of time in disobedience and as a result, they spent a lot of time in weariness. By the time we get to the book of Isaiah, we're on a really long trajectory of really hard living. The northern kingdom has just fallen to Assyria. Isaiah and Jeremiah use chapter after chapter of their books to wave their arms around in warning to the remaining tribes in the southern kingdom of Judah. God's people continue to choose rebellion, and here we are right now today, thousands of years later, reading the account about how God's people march right into captivity of Babylon with idols in their bags. 
So imagine life as an Israelite in the Old Testament. Their cities have been destroyed. They're far from what's left of the temple. They're forced to assimilate to a foreign culture. And this is going on and on. Seventy years later, Persia will overtake Babylon. And although there are a few allowances made for some of them to go back and rebuild the temple, God's people are still really tired. And then the Old Testament ends, and we have 400 years of silence from God. So we open Matthew 1, the first chapter of the first book of the New Testament, and we're really hoping that things have gotten better, and they haven't. Um, God's people still aren't really free. There is a new ruler in town, and it's Rome. Okay. So I love the Old Testament, but why did I just make you relive the whole Old Testament? Because I wanted to point out that in God's word, generation after generation of God's very own beloved people felt acute weariness. They struggled under the oppression of government, and they were fighting the daily battles that we feel, physical fatigue, spiritual doubt, hardened hearts. Some of them did contend for their faith, but others just gave up when life got too hard. Of all the eras of time in the history of planet Earth, this spot right here, the spot of complete despair, is where the second person of the Trinity quietly slips in. It was finally time for hope realized. So sociologist Jean Kerr says that hope is the feeling that the feeling you have right now isn't permanent. It's the feeling that the feeling you have right now isn't permanent. Hope is waiting, trusting that things will change. Hebrews 11.1 talks to that, and it equates this with faith. It says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So faith and hope are two sides of the same coin, and that's a coin that we hold tightly in our palm while we wait. Jesus says in Matthew 13 that the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and he sowed in a field. It's the smallest of all seeds. But when it's grown, it's larger than all the other garden plants, and it becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air make its nest in its branches. It starts as something so small that it seems really inconsequential. But seeds quietly germinate, And baby roots start to poke out. And before long, those little roots get deeper and thicker. And something tiny pokes through the surface of the dirt. And this is pointing out the obvious, but we can't see this when it happens. It's literally an underground operation. No? Okay. (laughs) We have to wait. We have to hope. And the kingdom of heaven is like that. Immediately after the seed example, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour. So we're in Arkansas, and not only do we not use the metric system, but it's been a while since I have cooked in measures. Um, It doesn't really matter, though, because the point that Jesus is making in both of these examples is that the coming kingdom is rumbling under the surface. So I see some of you. Some of you are sourdough people. And I'm sorry, I still don't have the capacity to take your starter home with me. (laughs) But, and I don't deal with leaven, I don't know a lot about bread, but Google tells me that the process is similar to the seed. Something very small causes something very big to happen. 
Levin takes a flat dough and makes it a fluffy, delicious bread. It eventually affects the entire loaf irreversibly. It happens with bubbles and gas inside of the dough, and we can't see it when it's happening. We have to wait. We have to hope. And the kingdom of heaven is like that. Similarly, we understand the development of a baby in utero. After fertilization, an egg inside of a woman's body will multiply rapidly. The embryo implants into the uterus. In the next several weeks, the nervous system will develop. A heartbeat will be detected. Arms and legs will stretch out. Lungs and reflexes and fingernails are emerging. And those of us on the outside of the womb can't directly witness any of this happening. We do notice signs of pregnancy, and especially toward the end, we can be really sure that there's a baby in there. But the development takes time, and it's hidden away from us. We have to wait, and we have to hope. And when it's time, the waiting ends, and a brand new person inhales the air that we all breathe for the very first time. And someone that we've waited for and hoped for is finally here. And the king of the kingdom of heaven came like this. The long expectant wait of the faithful saints in the Old Testament funneled into a nine-month wait for an expectant mother. The first coming of Christ is proof that hopeful waiting is not in vain. God's faithful people in the Old Testament waited expectantly. Their earthly circumstances sometimes changed and sometimes they didn't. They were forced to choose to wait well for the Lord or be lulled into trusting something their eyes could see. And the temptation was always there to trust the latest government, to trust people in neighboring nations that had different gods, to trust idols that their very hands could make. Those options were visible and they were tangible and they required very little personal sacrifice. Unfortunately, those options also led to death. Hopeful waiting required an unwavering conviction that God would keep his promise. So going back to Hebrews 11, it unpacks example after example of faithful waiters in the first 40 verses. And I'm not going to read 40 verses to you. You're welcome. But please do read Hebrews 11 whenever you get home and think more about this. It starts with the reminder that the universe itself was created by the word of God so that, don't miss this, are you listening? What was seen was not made of things that are visible. Again, something seen that came from something we couldn't see. It goes on to remind us that our eternal reward, so the other, other bookend of this, our eternal reward is an unseen heavenly city where we will rise again to a better life with our God for all of eternity. Believing in the promises of the unseen is how the believer waits well. It's why we read the Christmas story and we recognize the first coming of Christ as an extraordinary guarantee that God keeps his promises. He did it faithfully in the person of Jesus born as a baby. And here's the announcement of the promise fulfilled. This is Luke 2, 9 through 10, and I think it's in your paper. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Good news, great joy, all people. The city of David, 
The buzz of the Old Testament was the birthplace of a savior who is Christ the Lord. So Christ is just the Greek for the Hebrew word Messiah, and that is a title that equates this baby with God himself. This is good news and great joy for people who are accustomed to bitter, weary lives. This is the thing about Christmas that we celebrate, is the reason why we're joyful. Jesus lived a perfect life, and he wasn't distracted by the physical things his eyes could see. The Bible tells us on four separate accounts that he lived perfectly and that he died gruesomely. He was resurrected, ascended into heaven, is alive and seated at the Father's right hand, and he'll come back one day to judge the unrepentant and to save his own. He secured righteousness for us. And you know, he secured righteousness for me, personally. When I recognized my sin, my total depravity, my complete inability to save myself, he offers newness of life. If you aren't sure about this, and I want you to know that the offer that I'm hoping in for today and for tomorrow and for all of eternity is available for you too. You're seen and loved by your maker, and maybe the wondering that you're feeling right now is a nudge from him to repent and believe. The fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament and the birth of Jesus leave us who belong to him expecting that God will continue to be faithful to us. We wait with hope as every day gets us closer to that eternal city. So I don't think any of the Christians in the room would disagree with me that God's people are called to wait well. Romans 12, 12 gives us three very practical applications. So here they are. I think this is in your notes too. And someone's going to ask you a question. So listen. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Rejoice because your Redeemer has come and he's coming again. Be patient when you are so weary. Sister, your God has not forgotten you. Be constant in prayer. Prayer and waiting are close cousins in the Bible. And just a quick example of that is in Acts 1, 4, Jesus tells his followers to wait for the promise of the Father. And this promise was the Holy Spirit. Acts 1, 14 says that they were devoting themselves to prayer. So a handful of verses later, we see the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So waiting and praying and a promise kept from Jesus, all right there together. So keep praying. Rejoice, be patient, pray wait well. Maybe you are not a Christian, and you're here at this tea because you have a friend that you really like, and they invited you to come, and now you're here. Um, I have friends that are firmly not Christians, and they just tolerate me because we're friends, and, but they tolerate the fact that I'm a Christian. Um, if that's you, and I'm speaking your language, I want you to know that I'm really glad that you're here. I wonder if anything in the beginning about weariness resonated with you. I wonder if you do feel weary from working so hard to achieve at your job or from keeping up an image. Or are you weary from just staying really busy so you don't have to think about things like this? Are you weary from scrolling and monotony? Will you hear me say that in Jesus, there is rest for the weary and hope for the hopeless? This is the joy in celebrating Christmas. And Augustine was right when he said that we are restless until we rest in him. If you aren't a Christian, I've prayed that you're drawn in by the unseen God becoming seen. I hope that you will ultimately decide to wait with us, 
by seeing your sin for what it is and believing in Christ. If this feels like a jumbled knot in your head, that's fine. I hope you'll continue to just talk about it with other people, and you can talk to me after this. Um, In Acts 2, there's a record of the gospel being presented to a large crowd, and it says in the text that the people were cut to the heart. Their response to Peter was, brother, what should we do? What should we do? The Israelites had to weigh this question too. What should we do with the promises of God? We've come full circle. We can choose to trust what's in front of us, our imperfect government, our homes, our jobs, our families, our reputations, or we can trust in an unseen God who made himself seen in the city of David after a long expectant wait as a human baby in our world. We can wait well, expectantly, for his next return and for the eternal city, trusting him. Will you wait with us? Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you that we do have something to be expectant about. We do have an eternal city. We pray that we would trust you more every day. We know that you are trustworthy. We thank you for Jesus. In his name, amen.